for those of you guys who don't know me, I think I don't think I've met a lot of the interns, at least on the internal medicine side. Uh, my name is Dave Wacker. I'm one of the EMIM Crit Care Reza Fellows. This is my PGY six year, um, if you can believe that. I sure don't. Um, but anyway, I want to talk about something today that that. Looking back over six years, I think I've seen several cases of now, um, especially in the ICU and even in the emergency department. And I, I really don't feel like I appreciated this as much as I should have when I saw it. But um, it's the effects of refeeding following starvation and, and, and even just the effects of malnutrition itself. Um, and I, uh, I still don't have any disclosures, <laughs> even after six years, and there still are none on the horizon. So that's pretty weak, but whatever. So today we'll talk about a few things. Um, we'll talk about uh, the metabolic and physiologic changes that occur in the starvation and the refeeding state. We'll talk about trying to decide who's at risk for the refeeding syndrome. And uh, we'll discuss strategies for refeeding management and, and, and refeeding complications should they occur, trying to prevent them and then trying to manage them uh, should they occur. I always like to start with some cases to, to, drive the, to drive the talk. And these are all real cases except for the fourth one. Um, that I was personally involved in um, during my time here at Maryland. And the first one is from our MICU, um, a 67-year-old female with stage four lung cancer. She's admitted for pneumonia. And uh, on her admission history, it turned out that oral intake at home had been pretty poor. Um, so on like hospital day one or something, an NG tube was placed and, and feeding was started. On days three through six, the serum phosphorus level falls. And despite the interns, and in this case, yours truly's, um, dutiful attempts to replete it, it never gets above one until like day seven. And at the time, the intern has no idea why this is happening. Um, the whole team, just when they round on this patient, kind of brushes over it and just says, just replete the FOSS, you know, that's all. And uh, years later, I am very thankful that there were no associated adverse events um, with this. Second case is a 55-year-old guy, um, known alcoholic, presented for detox to the VAED just, just across the bridge there. Um, had a lot of motor problems, wildly ataxic gait, trouble controlling his extraocular muscle movements. And he said he's always been like this. You know, it's always been this way. And I did a head CT, and, and it was normal. And I just kind of said, OK, well, don't really know why you're having these problems, but it sounds like it's always been this way. Um, but fortunately, the attending was John Flanagan. Who was an, any of you guys know John Flanagan? Yeah, like the, the, the combines. <laughs> anyway, um, he, was, he was an older attending at the, at the VA who now, uh, I, I think he's doing something else now, um, but isn't there a whole lot anymore. But he immediately recognized what this was as, as Warnicke's encephalopathy. In case three, um, this one is fairly recent, and I don't know if anyone from my last MICU team is here, but you'll probably rec recognize this one. A 40-year-old female with a history of anorexia nervosa, and an active relapse was transferred to the MICU from an outside hospital for management of her malnutrition. Um, Low-dose tube feeds were already started there. On arrival, she was anasarchic, but still weighed in at only 40 kilograms, despite the anasarca. Um, she was intubated for respiratory failure, her extremities were cool, and an echo showed an EF of 15 to 20%. Cardiology consultants suggested that sepsis may be causing the reduced EF, and the PGY6 Mickey fellow, again, yours truly, uh, agreed with him. And I was like, oh yeah, sepsis. It's definitely sepsis. It's got to be sepsis. Well, the patient had negative cultures, was not on antibiotics, was not on pressors, had no other evidence of sepsis, but because it was the Mickey, we went with sepsis. Mm -hmm may not have actually been sepsis. 
And case four, and this is a hypothetical case, um, a medical team including internal medicine and emergency medicine physicians, in this case not yours truly because I don't really travel that well, um, <laughs> volunteering for an international medical relief agency are deployed to a war zone immediately following a ceasefire. Uh, a convoy of relief supplies including copious amounts of food arrives with them. Many local civilians have been without food for months. They appear lean but not necessarily emaciated. Is it safe for them to eat? How much can they safely be given to eat? and what should be monitored during the refeeding period. So we'll try to answer these questions today. And um, to answer them, we'll start by examining the state of starvation and the, the physiologic and metabolic uh, changes that occur with starvation. And then we'll look at refeeding and the, the kind of jarring shock-like state that it can occur with this sudden reintroduction of calories. Um, this, of course, is one of the four horsemen. This is the third horseman who rides the black horse. This is famine. Um, this is uh, from a famous painting of the Four Horsemen by uh, Victor uh, Vatsikoff, I think was his name. And um, this is the, the biblical description of the Third Horseman. He always carries scales because during uh, ancient times of famine, when, when food was short, the way that you would ration out the bread would be to, to measure it in these scales. So these were these actually referred to as famine scales. So. I guess kind of the good news on starvation is that there really has not been a lot of research done on this topic. Um, there's been a few observational studies. There was only one, and I, I say large, but it really wasn't even that large, controlled experiment. Um, and I say good news because in a world that has enough food to feed everyone like two or three times over, we really shouldn't be, I think, dick, you know, spending a lot of time, money, and effort trying to figure out what the effects of starvation are. We should just be using that time, money, and effort to feed people and to work on feeding people. But unfortunately, there are hungry people out there. And, and even more unfortunately, there still are wars and armed conflicts out there. And, and those things only exacerbate uh, starvation and only exacerbate hunger problems. And in fact, most of the research that has been done has been done during times of war. Um, usually, it's, it's observational trials of uh, soldiers or prisoners or, or civilians in a war zone who have been deprived of food. And even that one fairly large controlled experiment that I was talking about was driven by um, the perceived need for studying the refeeding syndrome at the, at the end of World War II. And we'll talk more about those in just a minute. But um, uh, starvation, of course, has been a problem for, for all of human history. And the, the figureheads of medicine have studied it for, for years and years and years. You know, as, as far as human history goes back. Unfortunately, the written, re uh, written medical uh, record only goes back about a decade or two. Um, I'm sorry, a century or two. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll kind of start with some of the early um, studies that were accessible to me regarding starvation. And, and th this was um, from uh, an observational study done by British, uh, British Army physicians during the Siege of Kut. And what had happened was during World War I, some British and Indian troops, um, it was the, the, the Pune unit uh, of the British Army, um, were pinned down near Baghdad by Turkish, Turkish Ottoman forces um, uh, for about 148 days. And uh, there was a fairly long siege. They, you know, they didn't have the food stores that you would want to have if you were if you were under siege and by the end of the by the end of the siege they really just had brown bread horse flesh because the, you know what they had was horses that were towing their artillery and their supplies around um, 
and uh, kind of stuff that they could forage from the environment. Green stuff, which I think means leaves. Um, <laughs> herbs, yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I think that's what he was referring to. Green stuff, herbs, and grass. And, and by the end of this siege, the, the average number of calories per day for a British soldier was about 1,800, which may seem reasonable, except that these are active duty soldiers. So they're not just kind of sitting around doing nothing. They're, they're engaged in a lot of physical activity. And for Indian soldiers, it was about 1,100, which is a pretty severe deficiency. Um, so this, this map just kind of outlines what, what the situation was. Right here was Kut, and that's where the British and Indian forces were kind of pinned down, right up, right up against the Tigris River here on three sides. And then the Turks and the Ottomans had formed these lines to, to hold them down. And you can see this was a photo from the, uh, from the siege. There were uh, quite a few casualties. There wasn't even really that much fighting. This is all just disease and hunger causing a lot of casualties. And the, the army physicians made uh, several observations um, during this period. Um, there was quite a bit of weight loss, as you would expect with starvation. British, uh, British soldiers, on average, lost about 10% of their starting body weight. Uh, Indian soldiers, about 14%. The um, starvation was associated with hypothermia. The average body temperature was 96 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit. Bradycardia, in many cases, 30 to 40 beats per minute was the average heart rate for a, a soldier undergoing starvation. And in fact, later research would show that if you have a starving patient and they're normocardic, like 70, that's actually a very bad sign for badness that's going to occur during refeeding. So bradycardia is the norm. Diarrhea was very common. And some of it was infectious diarrhea. They could prove that it was dysentery. but. Um, some of it uh, really was, was from some other cause. And, and, and when they would do post-mortem uh, biopsies uh, and, and um, autopsies on, on soldiers who died, um, what they found is that there was a lot of intestinal inflammation, just general, no specific cause, ulceration, seemed to be a direct effect of the starvation. And there, there's not been a lot of research into what the exact mechanism of that is, but it seems to be something that occurs with starvation. There was, of course, a lot of fatigue and inclination to sleep, and a, and a lot of vitamin and, and mineral and nutrient-related deficiencies like scurvy and beriberi. Um, there were a lot of studies like this in World War I um, and a lot of different populations of people who, who starved, and I won't go through all of them. I'll just mention one more, two, one more here from World War II now. Um, this was a fairly large observational study of uh, actually Japanese POWs um, in the Philippines at the end of World War II. And what had happened here was, um, in the Philippines, the Japanese forces really fell in the spring of 1945. Uh, they were routed by the Americans by that point after a very long, uh, very long campaign to retake the Philippines. And um, VJ Day didn't really occur until much later, in September of 1945. So there were three or four months that these Japanese soldiers um, who, who were still there and hadn't been killed, captured, or surrendered, had to kind of fend for themselves. They didn't have supply lines. They didn't have reinforcements. They just had to forage and live off the land. Um, and their dietary staples were no better than the people at Kut. Grass, leaves, and potato tops. I'm not sure what the, why, the, why the top of the potato only. <laughs> Seems like if I were starving, I would eat the whole thing. But I don't know. Potato tops. Um, and the average weight loss was 40% of the starting weight. And I mean, that's profound. That's basically losing half of your body mass. And you know, these people weren't obese to begin with. They were active duty soldiers. So that's, that's really profound starvation. A lot of the findings in this study were similar to the findings at Cut, but one of the things that they focused on was, was wet versus dry cases of starvation. And 
it's really illustrated in these two photos here. These two soldiers have essentially lost, um, both lost about the same percentage of their body mass. Um, this guy, you can see it on very clearly, he's clearly emaciated. This guy has about the same amount of, of muscle mass and, and body mass, and the reason that he looks to be a healthy weight is that he has like two to three plus peripheral edema throughout. Um, so this was kind of defined as wet versus dry starvation. And the wet cases were referred to as famine edema, which was not a new thing um, in this study. This has been historically kind of one of the mysteries of starvation. And it's, it's even more, a little bit even more defined in children where they, they talk about, uh, what is it, Kwashiakor um, versus Marasmus uh, starvation. Kwashiakor being the, like the wet edematous starvation, um, which typically occurs with adequate calorie intake but protein deficiency versus marasmus or emaciated starvation, which typically, typically occurs with just overall calorie deficiency. And, and one of the things that these uh, authors tried to do during World War II that these doctors tried to do was figure out what the mechanism of wet starvation was. Why did these people get edematous? And initially it was thought that this might be heart failure. And unfortunately, echocardiograms weren't in, uh, in regular use at this time, so they couldn't just do echoes, but the things that they had available to them, you know, chest x-rays or rentograms or whatever they were calling them back then, physical exam, really didn't demonstrate a whole lot of congestive heart failure in these patients. The PMI wasn't displaced. There wasn't an, an enlarged heart on chest x-ray. Um, the JVP was not, you know, particularly elevated. Um, and, and the patients who died, they, they did autopsies and there weren't like, enlarged ventricular chambers consistent with CHF or anything. In fact, if anything, the heart was very atrophied. It was between a half and three quarters of the weight of a, of a standard, you know, non-starved patient's uh, heart mass. Um, so they really kind of felt that this wasn't due to heart failure. They also considered, well, you know, maybe this is uh, wet versus dry beriberi, but the thiamine levels between the two patients were not that different and really were not that um, that much lower than the standard thiamine level. And they considered maybe this is hypo, hypoproteinuria, uh, 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 hypo, hypoproteinosis. You know, maybe the serum protein levels are just low, or hypoalbuminemia, maybe the serum albumin levels are just low when you're losing oncolog uh, ontologic pressure. Um, but they, they, they measured the protein levels um, in, in these patients, and really, they weren't that different from baseline, um, and they really weren't very different between the two groups. So it's not like there was just a loss of ontologic pressure or something like that causing this. More recent research has suggested that this is actually an inflammatory effect. It's caused by leukotrienes and, and loss of a, uh, of, um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of here, um, antioxidants, is it, um, like uh, glutathione. Um, it's not, you know, there's not, there's not definitive research on this, but, uh, but that's kind of the theory right now. Um, at any rate, uh, it's not heart failure. And I want you guys to remember that it's not heart failure um, because we actually can sometimes see heart failure during refeeding. And um, I, wanna, I wanna really draw a distinction between the, um, uh, the, the edema that you see during starvation and the edema that you can see during refeeding. All right, so let's talk about the Minnesota experiment. This is the one controlled study that's, that's fairly significant um, in starvation research. And this occurred during World War II, um, toward the end of World War II. And the idea was, 
you know, Europe has just been, you know, had famine and war and strife for four years, and we're going to suddenly have these starving populations that we need to refeed, and how are we going to best re re rehabilitate these people? And in order to figure that out, we need to starve some people and then refeed them and then see what happens. Um, so this is the University of Minnesota campus here. It's my alma mater and my future employer, actually. Um, Y'all are welcome to come visit. It looks like there's 365 days a year um, <laughs> at any rate. Um, this was Ansel Keys. He was a longtime faculty member um, in the Department of Physiology at the University of Minnesota. He actually was better known um, for being one of the first people to draw a, a correlation between saturated fat intake and heart disease, and that's actually him featured on the cover of Time magazine for that discovery. But what he did in the 1940s, in the, in the early, kind of toward the end of the war, 1944-ish, um, was he, uh, he collected a number of volunteers from the civilian public service and essentially starved them. And just kind of as a side note, the civilian public service um, is basically where you went in World War II if you were a conscientious objector but were drafted. Um, in World War I, they kind of sent the conscientious objectors to the front lines, and that didn't really work very well because, you know, they didn't really want to fight, and so they didn't fight. So in World War II, they said, well, that's, that's not a good use of their, of their skills and their abilities. Um, we should really create this second option where we're not sending them to the front lines, but they're not dodging the draft. They're not getting out of service. And they, they created a, a, the civilian public service where they would do work of, quote, national importance, unquote, uh, at home. And generally, this amounted to conservation work and trail work. You would go to some you know, national park or site like that and develop the trail system or move rocks around or something like that. <laughs> and. <laughs> There was a lot of discontent among the people uh, in the CPS because they felt like this really actually was not work of national importance. And so when flyers like this came out suggesting, will you starve that they be better fed, they said, hey, this is a way that we can really contribute to the war effort um, but not, not violate our nonviolence principles, our nonviolent principles. And, and actually people volunteered for this study in droves. Um, and, and, you know, selecting the, the ultimate, I think it was 34 people who would be in the study was, was actually a, a bit of a task. So it was, if I recall correctly, about 34 people, um, 34 volunteers. And the, the experiment took place in three stages over a year. Stage one was normalization. Um, for three months. And really what this was was getting all of the volunteers down to a healthy weight. You know, some of them were maybe a little bit, little bit obese or maybe a little bit underweight at baseline. So for three months, they were fed a diet to get them to a normal, what was considered at the time, healthy body weight. Um, the, the, the other purpose of this first three months was kind of to determine what the baseline calorie needs of the volunteers was. You know, how much can I feed this person so that they don't lose weight and they don't gain weight? And once that was determined, determined stage two started, which was starvation or, or starvation diet is what it was called for six months. And it wasn't really frank starvation. It was 1,600 kilocalories per day, which isn't too bad. But they were made to do some physical activity during this time. They had to run, walk or run on a treadmill for a certain number of hours a day and do some other things as well. And then stage three was rehabilitation. And this, this really was the focus of the experiment, stage three. Um, because uh, you know, we, we already kind of knew how to starve people. We knew how to make that happen. But the real question of the experiment was, how do you refeed them and not have there be, be complications and problems? So during stage three, what happened was their, their caloric intake was increased 
in different groups. So one group got 2,000 calories a day, and another group got 2,800 calories a day, and another group got 3,200 calories a day. And some groups got vitamin supplements, and others didn't. And some groups got protein supplements, and others didn't. And, and the idea was to try to figure out what the optimum regimen was for recovery from starvation. So during this experiment, many observations were made similar to previous, um, both in Kut and in the Philippines. Um, famine edema again occurred. Um, and again, there was no evidence of heart failure. And some of these patients actually were, I think, right heart cast or whatever the period equivalent was to check the right heart chamber pressures. Um, and, and they didn't have elevated pressures. So there really was not, at least on the right side, evidence of heart failure, um, despite this, this development of edema. Um, there were vivid descriptions of psychological effects on these patients. There were a lot of nightmares of cannibalism. Um, and there was one guy who, for some reason, just started mutilating his left hand semi-intentionally. At one point, he was doing some car work on his car, and he dropped his car on his left hand. Um, later on in the study, he actually took an ax and cut some of the fingers off of his left hand. Very weird stuff occurring with this starvation. That was in that the ax incident was actually during the refeeding, the rehabilitation portion um, of, uh, of the study. Um, but the important thing was that there were really no adverse, ad adverse events that occurred during controlled refeeding. And I say controlled here because following the controlled section, there was actually an uncontrolled phase of the trial, and, and there were some complications there that we'll talk about. And that leads us to refeeding. So there, there, there have been early signs of trouble with refeeding, um, even you know, throughout ancient history. Um, in the literature, anyway, in the, uh, in, in the cut paper, um, they specifically say death frequently occurs in those who, after forced abstinence, suddenly and completely gratify the natural cravings of hunger. And Dr. Heher actually gives uh, a specific regimen that he suggests um, for refeeding. It involved a lot of broth. Um, in 1945, in the Philippines, about 20 there was an approximate 20% mortality rate um, of the subjects following refeeding. And this was pretty significant because these guys have been surviving for months on virtually nothing. And all of a sudden, when you give them food, there's a 20% mortality rate. You know, why all of a sudden would they start dying after starving for months and months and months? In the, in the Minnesota experiment, um, during the uncontrolled uh, portion of the study, um, one test subject started consuming like 7,000 to 10,000 kilocalories per day um, after, after he was allowed to eat whatever he wanted to eat. And heart failure quickly ensued. And they started doing the standard treatments for heart failure, which were like, I think at the time, mercurial diuretics. They didn't really have Lasix yet. Um, and it was kind of persistent. And then they kind of said, OK, well, now we're going to restrict your diet again, put you back on 2,000 or 3,000 calories a day. And the, the heart failure quickly, quickly resolved at that point. And signs of trouble really started cropping up during the 1960s and 70s. And this was a period where tube feeds and TPN really started to, to come into more popular use. Um, and really, there, there was an increased frequency of case reports, of neurological symptoms, seizures, comas, et cetera, or even death um, three to seven days after initiating feeds um, in underweight patients. And in patients where it was checked, uh, hypophosphatemia was found to be both profound and almost universal. So, 
we've kind of come up with a model after decades of seeing the refeeding syndrome for what's happening. And basically this happens in two steps. And the first step occurs during starvation. In starvation, you're glycogen depleted. There's no exogenous sugars. Your body really is dependent on a state of, of highly elevated glucagon and really deficient uh, insulin in order to produce ketone bodies to feed your brain, you know, ketonosis. There's also a total body loss of electrolytes, potassium, phosphate, magnesium, calcium, and as well as vitamins, specifically thiamine and selenium. The second stage occurs with refeeding. There's a sudden reintroduction of exogenous carbohydrates, and that results in a sudden upregulation of insulin. And when you think about the biochemistry of these things, all those things from first year med school biochemistry that you've been trying to forget for, for like, you know, for me, 10 years, um, all of those pathways like glycolysis, TCA, oxidative phosphorylation, they suddenly get reactivated. And the substrates for these pathways have been depleted during the starvation phase. So now all of a sudden, you're trying to resynthesize ATP. You're trying to, to activate these metabolic pathways, and you just don't have the raw materials to do it. And profound deficiencies um, are, are what occurs when that happens. So hypophosphatemia is the prime example. This oftentimes is the biggest derangement that occurs during, during uh, refeeding. And, and it's basically what I just described. You've depleted yourself of phosphate for weeks or months or however long you've been starving. And all of a sudden, there's exogenous carbohydrates. All of a sudden, there's insulin. All of a sudden, glycolysis and the TCA cycle start up. You start trying to recreate ATP from ADP and phosphate, except that you don't have phosphate. You're trying to really crank up this arm of the, re of the, uh, of the cycle and severe phosphate deficiency um, results. And there are a number of effects of that, uh, cardiac arrhythmias, neurological symptoms including seizures, comas, paresthesias, um, even death, and uh, hemoglobin dysfunction as well. I think you guys all remember that 2,3-DPG dictates the oxygen dissociation curve of, of hemoglobin. Well, the P in DPG is, stands for phosphate, and, and the D stands for dye. So for every 2,3-DPG uh, that you're making, that costs two phosphates. So if you don't have phosphates, you really don't have a lot of 2,3-DPG. And this can result in a lot of dyspnea and fatigue um, with refeeding syndrome. And that can actually be um, worsened further by, by diaphragmatic dysfunction if, you're, if your diaphragms have been weakened during your starvation. Oh, and uh, I should also mention that this tends to peak around day four through seven of refeeding. So if on day two everything is looking good, you're not out of the woods yet. Vitamin deficiencies also occur during refeeding, and the mechanism is very similar. I'll just talk about thiamine here as an example. Um, but you've depleted your thiamine stores during starvation. Your serum levels may be okay because, the, you know, the body is moving thiamine to the serum. And I should mention that for phosph uh, phosphorus as well and all the other electrolytes, your serum levels may be okay at the time that you start refeeding because your body, even though it's total body repleted, is shifting these things into the serum to, to keep, your, keep you functioning. But um, your total body thiamine and, and, and electrolytes are all depleted. So um, if you all recall, thiamine is actually a cofactor for the TCA cycle. 
So if you're suddenly reintroducing carbohydrates and insulin and you're starting up the TCA cycle, again, you don't have the thiamine to do that, but you're trying to do it anyway, and you end up with a severe thiamine deficiency and Wernicke's encephalopathy can ensue. An interesting effect of carbohydrate deficiency in refeeding is oliguria. Um, this was actually discovered in the 1960s. Um, at that time, endocrinologists were trying to use uh, periods of fasting as a treatment for obesity. And the idea was, if you've got an obese patient, rather than trying to put them on a diet that they're not going to stick with or an exercise regimen that they're going to hate, what you would do is just have them completely fast. You would like admit them to like a semi-hospital for three days, have them completely fast for that time, eat nothing, and then have them go live their lives for the rest of the week or the rest of the month or whatever the whatever the cycle period was. And they were observing some funny, funny shifts in the patient's urine output with doing this. So um, these scientists, uh, Vever Brantz and et, et, et al, um, said about trying to figure out why this was occurring. And what they actually found was is that if you deplete carbohydrates from the diet, if you fast, um, your body has a tendency to uh, excrete a lot of urine sodium, or a lot of sodium in the urine, and, and free water uh, tends to follow that. So you lose a lot of water and a lot of sodium when you fast or when you, when you deplete carbohydrates. And this actually is partially how the Atkins diet works. You guys remember the Atkins diet? So a lot of people would say, oh yeah, I went on the Atkins diet and I lost 10 pounds in a week. Well, guess what? Most of that is water weight because when you don't eat carbohydrates, your body tends to, uh, tends to waste these things. Problem with the Atkins diet, as well as the strategy, um, is that when you reintroduce carbohydrates, the opposite effect occurs. The kidneys start really holding on to sodium and therefore holding on to free water, um, and you regain that sodium and free water um, in your system. And the effect that that has on your urine output, though, is that your urine output drops off drastically. So that's why when these patients were being refed, they were noted to become oliguric, sometimes severely. Um, in one patient in this study, they noted that urine output may drop as low as 500 cc's per day um, without loss of creatinine clearance. And I can't, I, I wish I could give you that number in cc's per kilo per day, but they didn't provide the specific weights of these patients. Um, but it was a study on obese patients, so I can tell you that the average weight was 126 kilograms. So that really is like 50 cc's per kilo per day. And, and this patient didn't have any loss of creatinine clearance. Your kidneys function normally during that time. And I say that because if you see that a patient's urine output is dropping off and give them a whole lot of exogenous fluids and they already have an atrophied heart from their starvation, the, uh, the resulting state may be congestive heart failure. This is actually an echo from the uh, patient with anorexia nervosa um, who we saw in the MICU that I, that I mentioned at the start of the talk. Um, she was given quite a bit of fluids for hypotension, low urine output. We thought she was in sepsis. And um, this, this, this was the result, was that we had these big blown out ventricles, not a lot of heart function. Um, she basically went into fluid congestive heart failure, which we got her out of, I might add. <laughs> <clears throat> So who's at risk? Who should we be worried about for, uh, for uh, repeating syndrome? Well, these criteria are from the uh, National Institute of Clinical Health Excellence, or NICE. And when we say national here, we're actually referring to the British nation, not the US. There are no US guidelines. Um, but the Brits say, 
watch out for these things. In terms of the BMI, if it's less than 16, you automatically qualify. Weight loss over six months, if it's 15% of your body weight, you automatically qualify. Little or no nutrition for 10 days, you automatically qualify. Or if you've been not really eating too well and you have an electrolyte derangement, you automatically qualify. If you have two of these things, you also qualify. Somewhat lesser, uh, lesser uh, restraints here. Um, if you're an alcohol or drug user regularly, that counts as one of the two of category. And there's also a number of other medications that they say if you're on these medications and you have one of these other things, um, you would qualify as being at high risk for refeeding syndromes. And those, and those are medications like insulin, uh, I think Coumadin, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but it's things that basically all of our patients are on. Um, so where do you begin if you identify someone who you think is at risk for refeeding syndrome? Well, the standard calorie need for most of us to maintain our weight, if we're, if we're dormant, if we're not really doing anything, um, is 25 to 35 kcals per kilogram per day. And the recommendation is that if the patient has severe illness or has been you know, basically NPO for five days or more, start at 50% of that um, for two days, and if you don't encounter any problems, then you can go to the full diet. For patients who are at high risk of refeeding syndrome, i.e. the previous slide, start at 10 kilocals per kilogram per day and increase slowly over seven days and monitor the patient for complications, which we'll talk about in just a minute. For extreme cases, like a BMI of less than 14 or no PO intake for 15 days, start at five kilocals per day, per kilogram per day, a very low amount. And, and as we'll talk about on the next slide, those patients need to be intensely monitored. So if possible, should always put, use cardiac monitoring for patients at high or extreme risk, especially patients at extreme risk of refeeding syndrome, you know, like that anorexia nervosa patient who comes in and their BMI is 40, wet. Um, they're at extremely high risk for refeeding syndrome. They may become hypophosphatemic and have cardiac arrhythmias. Supplement thiamine, B vitamins, selenium, and provide multivitamin for at least 10 days. And, Thiamine, usually 100 IV is sufficient, or two or 300 PO if they're, if they're taking PO well, which they probably aren't. Um, monitor and replete phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, and calcium at least daily, um, if not more often. In extreme cases, I would say even Q6 hours. Um, and be judicious about giving IV fluids even for low urine output. You know, as I mentioned, it's natural when you reintroduce carbohydrates into the diet for the urine output to be low for a few days. If you think the patient is septic or there's something else going on, obviously you should treat that. But if you just have this low urine output in isolation and everything else is going fine, ride it out. You know, let it be, monitor their creatinine, but see what happens. You, you know, if you give them a lot of fluid trying to get their urine output up, you, you may just end up causing a lot of heart failure. And if, you're uncontrolled symptoms, if you have uncontrolled symptoms of refeeding syndrome develop during the refeeding process, that's an indication to slow down or even stop for a little while. Um, let the patient's metabolic and physiologic processes catch up with what's happening and then restart. So in summary, um, patients who have been starving or are victims of starvation probably will have bradycardia, hypotension, hypothermia, and may have peripheral edema without heart failure. If the BMI is, that should be less than 16, sorry. 
um, little, little, little or no intake for 10 days or 15% weight loss over, over three to six months. If any of those things have occurred, those patients are high risk for refeeding syndrome. Refeeding syndrome can cause electrolyte derangements resulting in arrhythmias, neurological symptoms, oliguria, or heart failure. Start refeeding at 10 kilocals per kilogram per day, five for extreme cases. And if you run into complications, which we've talked about, slow down, even pause. Remember, they've been starving for months in some cases, or at least days. Waiting a little bit of time isn't gonna hurt them necessarily, but if you start too quickly, you know, that, that's what can really cause a problem. So at this point, I'll acknowledge my, my small army of program directors. Uh, all of the house staff on the EMIM and critical care programs, and I was actually counting this up recently. I've, I've worked with more than 500 house staff over the last six years. So you've all been fantastic, and it's been my pleasure. And I'll take any questions that you have at this time. Um, when I see the, your criteria for refeeding syndrome, I, um, mm -hmm. there's a fabulous show TLC called uh, 600 Pound Life. And I'm wondering if they've ever encountered this in, the, in a severely obese patient who got bypass surgery and then stopped eating for whatever reason, um, and then encountered that. I don't know if, if that was seen in the literature anywhere. Because um, I know in America we don't have a lot of problems with very slim people is more the other spectrum. So I wonder if you saw anything in that regard. Um, not, not specifically. Um, a lot of the more recent literature that I saw focused more around anorexia nervosa. That's, that's usually the starvation model in the U.S. right now is, is a patient who has anorexia. Um, I know where you're coming from, though, as far as gastric bypass surgery goes. I, I didn't see any specific cases of it, um, but I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there are case reports out there. Thanks, Dave. Wondering in the ED, is it if you suspect this, is it wrong to throw some electrolyte repletion at someone acutely? Oh, you should always replete electrolytes acutely. There's actually, the real debate um, in, in terms of electrolyte repletion is whether you hold refeeding in order to allow electrolyte uh, supplementation and electrolyte repletion, or whether you can start slow refeeding while you're, while you're repleting the electrolytes. And, and there's a, a lot of differences in opinion about this. The NICE guidelines suggest that you don't need to wait, that you should start refeeding while you're correcting the electrolytes. But a lot of expert opinion actually says, no, you should correct the electrolyte um, abnormalities first and then refeed. Um, so, you know, whichever way you want to go, you've got someone backing you up on it. But definitely, definitely start aggressively correcting electrolyte um, abnormalities uh, intravenously um, in the emergency department or ICU or wherever you see them. Bob, you had a question? <laughs> so uh, any suggestions on pressure support for these people? I mean, I think that you wanted to do something for your lady with anorexia in the MICU, and I'm sure her pressures were low, and at the same mm -hmm. time, you're going to give inotropes, which are going to demand more energy, and mm -hmm. you don't want to give those fluids. What do you do? I would actually say tolerate the low pressures. If you don't find other evidence of ischemia or other evidence of perfusion problems, you know, low blood pressures are, are just a part of the starvation physiology. And you know that patient has been surviving for months with those pressures, and to try to acutely correct them, I think, may cause more problems than it solves. I mean, obviously, if you think there's something else going on, if you think they're septic or there's some other problem, you should treat that. But if it's just, you know, this patient has been starving, nothing else is really new, and, and they're uh, uh, hypotensive, just, just ride it out, 
start slowly refeeding as they regain nutrition that'll resolve that's okay you've worked with me you know i ignore oliguria and hypotension anyway so <laughs> <laughs> it, i mean it really can be hard if the patient is making like 50 cc's of urine per hour or uh, per day per kilo um, and, and is hypotensive, you know, you, our instinct is to want to do something about that. But unless you specifically suspect something, the literature would say, just, just ride it out, give it a few days, and see what happens. So. so how long do you have to watch somebody that you would think is at high risk? Like someone hasn't had PO intake in a month, they come in, you start refeeding them, but all their numbers look great. You know, do you wait two days or three days? Or oh, longer, longer than that. You got to go like seven to ten days is really seven when you're, because most of these things won't even set in for like three to seven days, most of the problems. So I would watch for like seven to ten days and someone you think is higher severe risk. So anyone with, that meets the criteria should just be admitted for like a week? Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you've got somebody who hasn't had significant PO intake for like 10 days or something, and, and it really can be hard to determine what significant PO intake is, because if you've got someone who has, you know, like, well, I eat, you know, a fast food sandwich once a day or something like that, that actually can be like 1,200 calories right mm -hmm. there. So, you know, depending on how much they do, that may not be a terrible cal uh, caloric uh, insufficiency. Um, but uh, if, if you think they're high risk for refeeding syndrome, you definitely, definitely should admit them and potentially to the intensive care unit because this, you know, you really need to monitor electrolytes like Q6 and you really need to, to have them on a, car a cardiac monitor with someone watching closely. Any other questions? All right, thank you everybody. Have a good day.